How's it going? This is Captain Cam with Blackbird Guide Services, and I will be your host for today's episode of Eastern Current. And today, our guest is Clay Parrish, who is a good buddy of mine, but he's also a very avid fly fisherman. He's an avid fly tire. He's a really, really good photographer, uh, and he's well-versed in in both saltwater and freshwater fishing. Uh, so he's He's good at catching rainbows and browns, but he can also transition into catching redfish on a flood tide or traveling to Mexico and chasing down permit. Uh, so we're going to get into a little bit of all that. Uh, so stay tuned and I hope you enjoy. If I'm fishing a jig, you can bet it's going to be an iStrike Texas Eye. Dave and Ralph at iStrike have built the most versatile and durable lineup of jigs in the saltwater industry. Whether you need a finesse presentation on spooky wintertime redfish, or you need to hop a big swim bait on deep water structure for cobia and bull redfish, iStrike has the jig for you. Be sure to check out their website and use code EC10 for up to 40% off all iStrike products and 10% off all Z-Man products. The code can only be used at iStrikeFishing.com and you can find the code and the link to their website in the podcast show notes. If you haven't already, be sure to check out Eastern Current on Patreon. There you'll be able to find our weekly Ramp Talk podcast where my guide buddies and I discuss our day-to-day fishing on the way to the boat ramp in the morning. You will also be able to find extra video content that you can't find on YouTube. If you've loved listening to the Eastern Current podcast, subscribing to our Patreon is a great way to help support the show. Clay, how's it going, man? Doing good, Cameron. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I can't complain. Are you in uh, Virginia right now? Yeah, made it back to Virginia. I don't know, right after Christmas. Um, so yeah, I'll be in Virginia for the next few months at least. Nice. And you have a explain to me what your job is, and then <laughs> and then maybe we can go into how it allows you to just live this. Uh, from the outside yeah. looking in, that's just incredible life where you get to travel all around and, and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, I don't think most of your listeners uh, would care too much about the actual job. But, yeah, it does allow me to to do to travel a little bit and do it a lot, which is awesome. Uh, took some work to get there. But I, I'm a civil engineer for a renewable energy development, developer company based out of Charlottesville, Apex Clean Energy. So we develop. Uh, wind and solar commercial scale utility scale projects all across the country. So that being said, I mean we're not. I mean we do have some projects in Virginia, but nothing's nothing's too locationally set. We have the company's growing a lot recently. Um, it's kind of some shift to clean energy across the country, and so we have projects everywhere, and we have people everywhere. And so you know, uh, before COVID, we weren't really our home office in Charlottesville, and pretty much. Nine percent of the company is located there, and uh, remote work wasn't really a possibility. And then, so COVID kind of did me some favors personally. I mean, um, so it gave me the freedom to to bump out. I think they're they're recommending, they're highly recommending everyone to come back. But I'm I'm well off of that train now. You know, once you have your freedom from the office, it's hard to go back. That's Maybe, some truth. people like it, but that is not me. I mean, I was traveling from. Um, from you know, outside of Richmond, Goochland, Virginia, it's in 45 to an hour drive every every just one way. So, I mean, 
not even working remote from wherever in the country. Like I get two hours of my day back because I'm not commuting. So yeah, it's hard to give those two hours back. That's the truth. Um, so I've, I've been, you know, you and I met golly, what was it? Three or four years it was, ago. It was right before COVID. <laughs> that's right like, before COVID. You don't, you don't remember. I mean, that's how we, that's how I got COVID. Oh, the day after the weekend I met you. Yeah. Yeah. That was the well, first time. That was the first time I got it. We had, um, a, a group of us had met out at Tangier Island, which is essentially just an island in the middle of the Chesapeake Bay. And we had gone out there to go duck hunting for, you know, surf scooters, canvas backs, kind of whatever was flying. And, um, it was an awesome trip, but yeah, there's, <laughs> we always joke yeah. right when we got to Tangier Island, which is like extremely remote, just a teeny little fishing Island. It's actually really cool. Um, but I remember the joke after we left was right when we pulled up to Tangier Island, this old guy kind of greeted us when we were there and he was like, <laughs> obviously really sick. And yeah. he was like drooling all over, all over himself. And we we're like, Oh God, that guy's going to give us COVID. And, yeah. uh, lo and behold, about five days later, I was laid up in bed for like, God, that was, so I've had it twice now. That was definitely that was the worst the same time. Same with me, man. I think, I think at least one or two other folks got it from that trip. We all went there. What was funny was like, like you said, a remote Island, right? It's a waterman's Island. There's no bridge to it. It's only by boat. And it's, uh, you know, an old school type of place to run off the water. And we thought we were going somewhere where we could escape COVID uh, because we thought maybe it hadn't gotten there yet. I mean, it was still really early in, in, when COVID-19 broke out. So, like, no one really knew what all was going on. But, but yeah, we got there and that old man, he, he was nice enough to let us park our boats at his dock. But he man, was. Yeah, he, he was definitely not looking well, but we weren't sure if it was COVID <laughs> or not. Like, he was also, like, 90 years old. But, the uh I what was weird is because we thought we were escaping COVID, but I think we probably got it there because of such an isolated community that once one person got it on the island, the whole island got it. Yeah. Because it's like only one restaurant, one grocery store, you know, like um, everyone's so tight knit there. That I'm yeah, cur- I'm curious what the population of that island is. It's got to be like 500 people. It's yeah, it's tiny. Uh, well, I can Google it real quick. But yeah, that was that was a a very interesting trip because I mean I think when most people think of going on duck hunting trips, they're like, oh, you're going to you know Mississippi or uh, Arkansas or Texas or somewhere like that. And um, Judd, who most people are familiar with, he has you know he got into the sea duck hunting business in the in the off season, so in the winters. When fishing, you know, you're not getting a bunch of calls for fishing. And, you know, now he has this, like, big metal, awesome sea duck hunting boat. And we were like, man, where can we take this thing? That would just be incredibly cool to go to. And and Tangier Island was one of those places. And uh, it was just – it was a really cool experience. It's a really unique experience. That that thing was a tank. (laughs) No, I definitely want to, I always thought it would be a trip that I wanted to go back and do. It just hadn't, hadn't come to fruition since then, but I just Googled it's population of 400 or 349. Yeah. That's so, a, that sounds about right. I mean, Smith Island, just north of there, used to have a 
uh, residents. And um, since like a, a big storm event and sea level rise, everyone's left Smith Island. There's nobody who lives in Smith Island anymore, which is actually in Maryland. Um, but yeah, no, that was that was an awesome trip. Uh, we also killed Old Squaw, which were like um, like kind of a, the local duck there, the big sprig on them. Um, I wanted to, uh, I really wanted to get one of those mounted and my, uh, my freezer actually went bad and the two that I had in there got ruined. So I didn't figure out the freezer was broken until weeks after, but, uh, yeah, that was an awesome trip. I, we should, we should go back sometime, dude. I would love to. That's definitely a trip I'd like to do again at some point Does for Jen sure. still have that, have that rig? Yeah. Oh yeah. He still got it. Yeah. Um, it was tough hunting. We didn't, we didn't. We didn't tear it up or by any means, but we had fun. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun just hanging out. Um, I want to talk to you about a lot of the trips that you've taken, and I'm just kind of living vicariously through your uh, a lot of your posts that you put on Instagram. And yeah. I swear it's like one week you're in Montana catching rainbows and catching browns, and then the next week you're in Central America catching permit and bonefish, and I'm like, what am I doing wrong yeah. to the point where <laughs> I can live a life I mean, like clay? It's, it's, um, it's, it's a dedication to do it. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of moving parts, but you mentioned permit earlier. They evaded me. Actually, I did. Uh, I had several, I had a couple shots. I didn't connect with the permit in Mexico. I was there uh, last fall, that fall. But, where, um, where were you at in Mexico? Yeah, I went to Ascension Bay Lodge. Um, so we fished Ascension Bay down at Punta Allen. Uh, Dan, Danny, the guy that runs it, super cool dude. Um, he's from, he's from the States and he, you know, moved down there after going several years and ended up marrying a local there. And he has a super nice lodge or like five bedrooms. Um, it's right on the beach, like all the lodges around the beach. So the boats come up and pick you up every morning right in the backyard. They had really good food. And, um, and they didn't let your, the, the bartender there, um, didn't let your margarita go dry. He, <laughs> he, he was there with a the pitcher ready to fill it up. Um, so yeah, we had a great time. My girlfriend and I went, um, it was a long time coming because we, we tried to go the year before, but, um, I'm just, I don't, I don't travel out of the country that much. Uh, and my passport was actually expired. I didn't realize it until it was too late because COVID, um, really put a hit on the time it takes to turn around a passport so anyways the second year trying to get down there we made it but Punta Allen super cool area man if, you, if anyone's never been it's uh um it's after you get south of Tulum it's just south of it's like two hours south of Tulum uh which is two hours south of Cancun and uh once you get past Tulum it's just a dirt road and it's through the um what they call the Siancon biosphere and yeah, you get halfway down the road and it literally, it, you know, it took two hours to go like 10 miles or so, you know, it's mm -hmm. five holes. Like, don't like, don't think you're going to like booze cruise the whole way because you're shook, your stomach is shook around <laughs> everywhere. Don't, they, those guys don't play around the taxi drivers. Like they, they haul ass and they, they're swerving in between all the potholes and hitting them. And anyways, we took the taxi halfway down and then you actually took the boat the rest of the way because the road was just, terrible um 
But once you get into the town of Punta Allen, dude, it's a different lifestyle down there, man. You know, like they get they have to get all their water delivered, all their gas is delivered. So to run that lodge, Danny, you know, he has to put in some work. It's just him and his wife, and he's got a couple little kids. They don't help out. They're they're smaller, younger, and then he's got I think maybe three or four employees. He's got some great guys. The guys down there kind of like up the year where they're they're either dedicated to a certain lodge or they're just independent contractors and. Um, we actually fished with a, our guides were a family. We had a, a uncle and his nephew for a couple of days. And then we had a father and son duo the last day. Um, and yeah, man, um, Alex and Rafi, uh, it was two Alex's actually, Alejandro and, and Rafi. Um, they definitely put us on some fish. They gave us a good trip. Um, my girlfriend went that like, you know, wasn't confident in being able to cast salt water this is her first salt water trip and she wasn't confident to be able to cast far enough in the wind like most of the time when you're saltwater fishing making long distance quick cast mm-hmm. and wind but i mean you know if you have if you have a good guide i mean they can find fish in good condition where you don't have to do that and the bonefish are the easiest to get to cooperate i mean i literally the first hour of fishing she caught her first bonefish um Got behind an island, tucked out of the wind, big pool of bonefish. Um, and they're pretty forgiving. I mean, you pop the fly right, right in the middle of the school, they all spook. But as soon as you strip that fly once, they just come in and just demolish that, that uh, shrimp. So, so yeah, she had a, she had a blast. Um, got on some baby tarpon. She ended up actually catching a, uh, probably 10 pound or so little baby tarpon, which was the biggest of the trip. Um, so the, the rest, after we got those good times out of the way, we, we focused on the permit for the next couple of days mm-hmm. uh, with me on the bow. Like literally, like I was just I had a good a good amount of shots. Just um, just never great shots. A lot of uh, bycatch ripping me up too, uh, stealing it away from the permit. Mm-hmm. I had several follows. Had some schools that just weren't interested. So um, we put the shots on them, shot after shot, change fly shot, shot. And just they just weren't weren't interested. Did have one eat, and uh, what you know, this is just the story of my life. Uh, I never knew I had bad luck until one of my my cousin Cole told me I had bad luck once. Um, <laughs> but then it stays uh, with you after that. Yeah, I mean, I never even knew. I never even realized how much bad luck I had. But yeah, I had one eat, and it was right after I caught a bunch of jacks and a bunch of bonefish as bycatch when I was casting at school. Um. And yeah, it broke my my line broke right at the loop of the knot. Um, oh, I was using man. twelve pound that day with a like a fifteen foot leader, um, because they were they were pretty spooky and it was flat water, um, low low tide flat water. Um, and so I don't know if it was like the bycatch that kind of eaten up that that loop there or not. I don't know, but it was or maybe my eye of the hook was a little frayed. Nobody knows, but. It was, he was a huge bummer. That was the last day of the trip, too. So, regardless, what I'm getting at is I'm due to go back to, to <laughs> Yeah, the, per- the permit are calling your name. Yeah, dude, you can probably tell I'm pretty mad at them. <laughs> there's only one thing to do when you're mad at them, and that's go catch one. I know, and the good thing about it is they're there all year round. I mean, you can go right now. I mean, you can go. The permit and bones are there all year round, so you can go in the off-season. Um, they have 
you know, I think the, the summer is typically pretty windy um, and hot. So sometimes people actually avoid like our summers. Um, the fall, it can be the hurricane season. So you're running that risk. We went in the fall. Um, you're running the risk of hurricane season. But if you get down there, it's good fishing. Um, the fall is typically the tail end of the big tarpon season, though. Summer does have the big tarpon if you're looking for those big migratory tarpon, um, which I did have a shot at one of those, too. Um, followed it right to the boat. Uh, that was pretty awesome. It was kind of a, an odd thing because they don't typically see them in the fall, like that late in the fall. Mm-hmm. Their winter is like their, our winter is like their prime season, you know, November to like May, the winter and spring. Um, but I mean, like I said, you can go there all year round and catch, uh, no, too. You gotta kind of get back in the, the back country. So is there, like is there like main, is there mangroves there? Yeah, yeah, there's, there's mangroves, uh, there's tidal, you know, estuaries. Um, yeah, just, I mean, it reminds you, once you get back in there, in that country, it reminds you a lot of Florida Everglades, you know. Sure. Um, so you just try to find some, some current around a point or, or just deep mangroves um, and hope you can find them outside of, this, outside of that. Most times, you know, they're, they're deep back in those nasty root, root bowls. But... It sounds like an awesome trip. You're making me want to go, and it, you're also Dude, making me I, you're also making me reminisce about. I, you know, I'm kind of mad at myself because I I really haven't pushed myself, and and my wife to take more fishing trips. A lot of times, it's like we're going on a family trip to somewhere that really isn't is not gonna. I'm not gonna spend the majority of the time fishing, and this, there's probably exactly. a reason for that. Um, but we, for our honeymoon, we went to Turks and Caicos and we Mm -hmm. took a guide one day and, uh, we, we were bone fishing and, oh my God, the, the bone fish down there, one are massive. And, and two, they're like everywhere and you don't see another boat the whole day, which was incredible. Yeah. That's amazing. But I'm curious because when, when I was fishing for bonefish, I kept trying to strip the fly, the fly like I was fishing for redfish, which is like, uh-huh. you know, strip, 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 like kind of fast, just uh-huh. giving the, giving the uh, fly a lot of movement. Right. And, and he was like, no, 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 don't do that. And I was like, okay, well, explain to me how you want me to strip. And he's just long, slow strips, long, slow yeah. strips. And it was the hardest thing for me to do because I'm so used to stripping for redfish. Um, yeah. But man, that like, completely completely changed the game so was that yeah is that a similar experience to you and yeah, your, your bone fishing yeah i mean the i've only i love saltwater flat fishing i mean that's probably my favorite and i sound i feel weird saying that because i've only done it a handful of times unfortunately um it's just yeah like you said the cost of getting down there and making it happen but um but yeah as far as the bone fishing and the presentation goes i mean the Bahamas and, and Ascension Bay were fairly pretty much the same. I mean, basically, you just need to get in front of that school if you're fishing for a single fish or not. But a lot of times they're schooled up. You get it, get in front of their, their general direction of where they're moving. They kind of dart all around, so that's why you have to pick it up and recast, pick it up and recast, and get in front of it. But once you're in front of that school, just let it sit there and wait until they get right up to it, and then one long slow strip. And as soon as that that 
shrimp comes off the bottom and does that arc right in front of their face, they're just gonna they're just gonna demolish it. Yeah, it um, was, they're gonna be fighting over it. Yeah, it was a game. But, I uh, mean, it was like it was crazy because I was casting a benefish, casting a benefish, and I was just doing the little strip, 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 and mm-hmm. they would just like come up to it. Nah, I'm good. Yeah. Come up to it. Nah, I'm good. I don't know. I think the Ascension Bay ones are hungrier, but they're they're also smaller fish. They're like I think pretty much all the benefish we caught were probably not over three pounds. I mean, they still great, did a great fight. I mean, they're, they're super fun. But uh, I was talking to the guides there, and like, yeah, they said that they think that um, that area, Ascension Bay, and all that is like a kind of like a uh, an estuary for like the younger fish. And he said they were thinking that maybe once they get a certain size, they move out because they don't get a lot of variety of size. Like, they don't have big and small fish. They only have those, you know, two two and a half pound fish. Yeah, that's, um, that's interesting. So it's kind of interesting. You don't have a, a big age group there. It's like a, uh, it's like a nursery you know, cradle for them. Yeah, nursery for them. That's a, that's what I'm trying to think of. But the Bahamas, when I fish the Bahamas, there's some bigger fish for sure mixed in. Um, that, that was a lot of fun. So when you were um, when you were fishing for the permit in Mexico, assume you're using like crab flies. Is there, yeah, just, what, yeah. how was the guide telling you to work those flies for permit? Well, so yeah, it was actually crab and shrimp patterns. Um, we mixed it up for sure. Um, like I said, there was sometimes, there was a couple mornings where we got on the school, like first, first light, uh, right outside of, right outside of the lodge, like literally, like you could probably still see the lodge and, um, they weren't, it wasn't like sight fishing on shallow water it was like a big stool in deeper water and we were we would hit them and then change flies and hit them and change flies and, and they were just it was diff- they weren't really eating you know you're trying to get a reaction bite but mostly yeah mostly we were using the crab crab patterns um you know i tied oh my i tied you see my box i tied so many different variations every size every weight every color of like a bunch of different uh crab patterns uh, but they I let the guide pick out, you know, the fly most of the time. They always went to the raghead, like the palmetto raghead crab or whatever. Um, just the, um, was it the fly foam body with white legs, three white legs, and marabou and, and hackle out the back um, with yellow eyes. For whatever reason, I'm not the one that made this up by any means. Everyone said you need yellow eyes. and. So that that the guide pretty much picked out that fly, the, either the tan or the white, pretty much every time. Um, but I tied some. Uh, I mean, that's, yeah, I tied several different crab patterns, but that's pretty much the main ones we fish. As far as shrimp patterns, the bonefish again aren't really too t- uh, picky. You can throw a lot of different things at them, um, but really just a, a and I'm so. You know, if we go down the rabbit hole, fly tie. I don't really follow recipes very well. I kind of do my own thing, and I generally follow a, rest, uh, a, a, a pattern. But like, I'll use whatever material I have or, or whatever material I think is better. So, like, basically a mantis shrimp uh, pattern or spawning shrimp pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, there's many different variations of those, but um, that was a go-to. So the fish that I actually permit actually caught, um, the or hooked. I told you it broke off in the loop of the knot or the loop of the, you know, um, right in the, the apex of the loop. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a, I guess you could say a spawning shrimp. I just put craft fur, 
either orange rabbit strip or something to make the spawning eyes. I think I had black, um, black flash, and then wrap the body with that um, that small tarantula brush, the tan, mm-hmm. with yellow eyes. Um, and that's what the permit actually ate. And that presentation was actually a, a ticking, like a like a red, more redfish. Got to get them. That's uh, put a lot of motion on that on that shrimp fly for the permit. Is what mm-hmm. they were having to do. Wait, yeah. so I imagine for some reason. And this it really has no basis. Uh, but for when you're when you're fishing for permits, saying the keys are in Mexico or wherever, and you're throwing these little crab flies, it's like a very particular way that you fish that crab because permits are so picky, and they have big eyes and they can see really well. And making that fly move exactly like a crab is probably really um, important. So like when yeah. I when yeah. I fish like quans for redfish, a lot of times I just try, I try not to jump them up and down because like for when I imagine a crab swimming, a lot of times they'll like dart a little bit. They'll get like fast and slow and fast and slow, but it's very like flat. Like they don't get really go like up and down too much, in my opinion. Yeah, that, that works okay yeah. for redfish, but I don't. You know, in redfish, we all know that. They can be picky, yes, but a lot, you know, if they're not spooked or they're not spooky, they'll pretty much eat almost any fly in your fly box, as long as it's not just like a massive pike fly or something. Um, So, was there like some, was there some secret to working a fly for permit that they told you that would be beneficial for people to know? Like when I go on any fishing trip, I mean, I'm all over YouTube and podcasts and videos and fly tying videos to tie for for my trip and um i know i'm no i'm definitely no permit expert having caught one but from what i've gathered yeah like you said they don't like that jigging what they do like is like a the, the ideal presentation that i think that i found um through the, my research was just like a, a slow falling crab right so like it's it's basically, it's a crab that's been on the, it's replicating a crab, a live crab that's like on the surface, right? And once it sees that permit, its safety is the bottom. Mm-hmm. So it's trying to get down to the bottom. And so when you land that fly, like, you know, three feet past them and a foot in front of them or so, you're just doing a long, slow strip, but you're, you're barely even moving, giving any extra to the fly. All your, that long, slow strip is mainly just keeping that fly line out. tight. Yeah. Keeping, and, and let the, just the tide, because the tide will move a, a live crab too, you know. You're just letting the tide and uh, and the weight of that fly uh, really give the presentation. Uh, the, I mean, and your cast location has to be spot on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's probably it's, uh, it's got to like drop down just it, within the fish's vision, and also the fish has got to think that this crab is running away from me. Exactly, and th- I mean that's why you see. A lot of your uh, your permit flies have giant uh, lead eyes, and that's because you do want this, this thing sinking pretty good. I mean, I tied a lot with uh, I love the tungsten eyes mm-hmm. for not only I love them for streamers for trout streamers um, because I love to get down there quick and get in the, get a good presentation. But same with permit flies. I mean, you want that 
they want that fly sinking pretty fast. They're usually feeding on the bottom, right, too, if they're if they are actually tailing, mm-hmm. you know, in six feet, three feet of water. You want to make sure that fly gets down there as quick as you can and get in front of their face. So tungsten eyes are good to use. Uh, mostly, I'll, you know, I tied, like I said, I tied ragged crabs or mixed, foam, mixed, mixed fly foam crabs is another thing. Or They got several names. It's basically the same pattern. But um, I tied them with tungsten eyes. I tied them with large, medium, and small lead eyes. And pretty much the main fly we use is probably a large yellow lead eye, mixed foam fly crab. Uh, white leg and you want those legs pointing straight out because when it's actually falling through the water or you're stripping it those legs are kind of pinned back like a crab but as soon as you stop the, the motion they'll like spring back out so it, the legs kind of give it some motion um they are kind of like a a, a crab with, with uh, when, it, when they're swimming yeah um, makes sense yeah it's so it's not a whole lot of motion as far as the permit goes um but yeah, there's there's several crab patterns that the, the, the permit fishermen that get super heavy about it, and I think um, you know the key permits are probably a little bit more difficult to catch because they got so much more uh, pressure. But people will use like keeled type uh, crab flies that so when that when that crab's sinking, if you think of lead eyes, you're gonna you know it's gonna be tilted mm-hmm. typically unless there's a good amount of current. Mm-hmm. Um, where if you get some of those keeled pat crab patterns, um, sink a little more flat. What's that? They sink a little more flat. Yeah, they sink a little more flat. And I can't think of the one I'm thinking of, but there's that one keeled pattern that everyone uses. Um, that's an old school crab fly, and it also can mimic a shrimp. Which one am I thinking of? Um, I taught a bunch of those, and I didn't even the guy never even picked them once. But did did you um I'll I'll ask you about one more crab fly and then we can we can move on from uh from permit and stuff because I do want to talk to you about kind of your your local fishery and also some of the fishing that you've done at West but mm-hmm. uh, and I'm gonna butcher this name and I still don't know how to pronounce it but is it Alphonse 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 crab or Alphonse? yeah the Alphonse the Alphonse crab Alphonse crab yeah I, I think that's what I'm thinking of yeah it has the keel body and the two rabbit strips. Yeah. Um, no, no, sorry. It's Avalon. Avalon crab. Avalon crab. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know. I know. That's, that a, that's a well-known crab pattern in, in Mexico and Belize and um, Honduras, you know, Guanajo, or, you know, all those areas people permit fish. But, yeah, I've had a bunch of those. The guy, the guy didn't want to use them. So. <laughs> and I went and with him, you know. Just so people know, and Clay's being slightly modest, Clay's an extremely good fly tire. And it's crazy to me too, because I know you don't fish saltwater all the time, but your your saltwater flies are unreal. So yeah, I, he must have he must have really liked those ones with yellow eyes uh, to not yeah. take those other ones. Well, exactly. The uh, yeah, me and fly tying. I mean, I I don't do it professionally like like you do, and I'm not a guy that needs to replace flies all the time. I I definitely don't commercial tie. I'm a I'm a strictly a recreational tire and I, 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 I'll pound out a good amount of flies when I'm going on a trip, but otherwise it's just a means of like meditation and like creative outlet for me. I mean, I, I'll tie one streamer a night. It might you know, take me an hour cause I'm watching TV at the same time. And, uh, yeah, it's just kind of fun. Um, but I'm always mixing it up and 
mixing materials, mixing patterns, creating these uh, Frankenstein type patterns. I'm usually watching a YouTube. I watch a YouTube, a couple YouTube videos or something. Um, For a little and, inspiration. And take, I'll just take different, take different um, materials and different methods from all these flies and yeah, kind of mix I, them all up. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. Yeah, you know? but you bring up a really good point, which is if you're a fly tire, you like fly tying and maybe you haven't watched, like may, maybe there's five flies that you'd like to tie. Um, Sometimes like I, I'll do it too. I'll go on YouTube and just look up different flies and be like, man, I don't have the materials to tie that fly, but I can tie something like it. And then you like create this kind of creation that's your own. And you're like, dang, I like this thing. I'm going to try it next time I go. So it's a great place for, for inspiration for sure. And it can definitely help you get creative and, and think of something totally new. Oh yeah, no doubt. I just, I wish I could have as much, uh, structure to my fly time to like, you know, tie two dozen in just one step and then you know, set them aside and then go to the next step and then, you know, add on, you know, yeah. like commercial tires do. Like That's a, hard, man. I, I can't do that, but, um, um, I'm with you. And I, I have a hard time now, especially I, I didn't used to, but now I'll tie like, you know, I, I have certain flies that I use all the time in those, I will tie, I'll sit down and tie five or six of them. But that yeah. is probably my least favorite thing to do in fly tying because anytime yeah. I tie something, I'll tie it once and I'm like, all right, this, yeah, this fly should work. And then I'll be like, maybe I should make three of them. And I'm like, nah, I'm going to try something different. <laughs> yeah, well, then you make three of them and then you go to find out it doesn't even swim well, yeah, very well. It exactly. You want it. Yeah, you're like, why is it but, riding sideways? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, kind of on the fly time thing i just i tie trout streamers i'll tie some junk like you know worms and birds uh which is my favorite rig for nymphing if i have to nymph but um and then i'll tie i love tying saltwater stuff but as far as the, the small stuff nymphs and dries i just buy because I, I can't get myself the time i've tried because i was like i'm gonna save myself money and cause i love fishing if i'm nymphing I'll, I'll be fishing tungsten bees and they do get expensive for those little guys. So I've, I've tried to tie them. I just, I just can't get myself to, to feel good about it. So I just still buy those. But the thing about saltwater flies and trout streamers and stuff, like you can make mistakes. You can have big clumps of, of, uh, uh, thread and, you know, you can just kind of, I just like to wrap over a bunch of material and just crank it down and, you can make mistakes and then still make it look good. It's not a, it's not a thing. When you're talking about dry flies, you have to be, Oh my God. You know, I'm only going to wrap this material three times with my thread or whatever. Right. Yeah. Cause you don't, <laughs> want, you don't want to like build it up at all. And yeah. well, it's, and it's especially hard to do with saltwater flies. Cause a lot of the materials like, so I don't know if thick is the word, but like there's just certain materials like the tarantula brush that you were talking about. I use that stuff yeah. all the time. And, uh, yeah, it, I mean, as soon as you cinch it in place and you wrap back on it a little bit, your fly's diameter has increased by like three times. Oh, yeah. <laughs> With that wire and everything. Yeah. Um, a couple of tricks about that tarantula brush. Um, but I, I love to use it. It is a buggy material. It, it's got a lot of, a lot of rubber legs, which I love adding any, any rubber to my flies. Um, 
it does slow, you know, slows the sink rate and puts more, uh, you know, friction in the water, but it, but it gives a lot of motion. But the, the tarantula brush, this is something that I actually figured out on my own, which is there's not many tricks that I figured out on my own. <laughs> Let's hear it, man. I can the, use all the tricks. You, I can use all the tricks you got. Right. A lot of times that tarantula brush, you know, you want to shape the fly, especially like a shrimp pattern. Um, if you use a razor, I don't know how it works. I don't understand how it works. But if you use a razor, it actually only trims that EP fiber and doesn't trim the rubber leg. Wow. And so you just, you got way more legs. I remember I used to, I used to trim the transfer brush with my scissors and I was like, damn, I just lost all my rubber legs. Yeah, it does look but, kind of funny. To me, when you tr- when you trim tarantula brush, because like then one side of your fly, like the side that you want to be on top, is like super bushy, and there's the rubber yeah. legs are flying out everywhere, and the other side is like really clean and nice. And yeah, you, and you're like oh, that does kind of look strange. Everywhere, yeah, use a use a, um, a a razor to trim the EP. But that's that's, that's a just, really good tip, honestly. That's I'm gonna a trick try that. that. I I found personally because most of my tricks I need to credit to. YouTube tires, um, or some of my good buddies. I've, I actually, I didn't start fly time that long ago. I mean, I think it's what really brings fly time full circle. It's, it's fly, it's fly tying, uh, brings fly fishing full circle because you get to learn what you're, what you're going after. You're either trying to, trying to attractive pattern or you're trying to like an actual imitation pattern, but it, uh, it, it definitely makes you feel good when you go catch a fish on the, on a fly you tied. But, I started oh, tying based on, I, I went to a, actually one of those Orvis classes. Like, this is probably, I don't know, six, six years or more ago now, but, um, that was, that's what got me started. And then I've, most of the tricks I've learned over the years, like, like that one, like, that's not something that you're normally going to hear about in any fly time book or video, you know, using a, oh, razor instead of a scissors but most of the tricks i know is based on just a couple friends like my buddy ned he um he helped me get it uh, taught me a few things when i first got started fly tying uh, he has his instagram is dude where's my fly um he um he makes he makes some nice saltwater flies i mean it's saltwater patterns and you know there's other friends like chris labrito um you know he, he's an awesome fly tire so they're they're better fly tires than me man but i I make do um, and just kind of create some weird things. That's what's fun to me. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's part of the fun of it is just trying to get creative and come up with something new or yeah. follow a pattern to a T and, and watch it work, which is also super fun. Um, tell me about your uh, your fishing in Virginia, and um, and then maybe we'll we'll talk a little bit about out west, some of your some of your ventures out west. Yeah. Um. So you, you where you live, are you fairly close to a place that you can go and catch browns and brooks and? Uh no, no. I I wasn't raised a trout fisherman at all. Um. So I'm in Central Virginia, right outside of Richmond, uh, west of Richmond, a little ways, in between Richmond and Charlottesville, a little town called Goochland, and uh, Goochland's bordered on the southern county line by the James River. So I was I was raised in the James River, um, smallmouth fishing. Oh, uh, okay. That's what I did most of, and I, I mean, I was raised fin fishing. I, I fin fished until college. Um, but yeah, the James River's right here. Uh, I grew up on a jet boat, you know, um, going out with some buddies 
Um, and I, I had one until last year. I sold it. But, um, but yeah, it's kind of fun. The tough part about the James is, you know, it's a great smallmouth fishery. The upper James is can be better for smallmouth where a jet boat's a little more difficult, like a raft or a canoe suits it better. Um, but it's a tough fishery, man. I mean, it could be, depending on how you look at it, tough or fun, but it's pretty, it fluctuates a lot. Like you get a little bit of rain, it gets blown out. The river's either high or muddy or in the summer it's like dead low and like, you know, it's tough to fish because it's so low and clear. There's, it seems to me over the years, there's very few days where it's like pre-no conditions. So when you get those, you know, mid flows with a, just a pin of cloudiness, you know, turbidity under like 10, I don't know what unit that is, but that's what I look at. The turbidity, if it's over 10, it's too muddy. But, um, you know, it's, it's not many days a year where you get those optimal conditions. So you have to, you know, know where the fish are, be, you know, be able to call out some audibles. Um, and it can be, I mean, I kind of grew out of smallmouth fishing now. I mean, I, I definitely still go, but, you know, the, the bay is only a couple hours away from here. So I go out, um, chasing striper and reds. And I love chasing cobia during cobia season on. Luckily, I have some friends of mine that can, that have tower boats. Um, that is that's so, a ton of fun. I mean, the Chesapeake so Bay is the best man. fisher. Yeah, the Chesapeake Bay is the best cobia fishing, you know, I, I would, mean, I would say in the United States. Yeah. So. I, I would agree with you. I mean, I haven't, I haven't been to Florida or anything to cubby fish, but mm-hmm. just from the a handful of times that I've been up to the Chesapeake Bay to cubby fish, I'm my mind is blown. Yeah, I mean, we're not fishing them on flats or anything like they do in Florida. Sometimes you can catch a cubby on a flat, which would be cool. But um, I mean, it's sight fishing. That's what that's what's so awesome about it. I mean, yeah, they're cruising on top. It is mating season. You know, that's why they're up there. They're um, but especially if you catch them early enough, um, typically before keeper season comes in, that's when you can have a lot of fun. There's a lot less boats out there, um, and it's just catch and release. And that that is something that is pretty difficult to see now. I mean, I'm still always down to go. But when I first started going, it was I was in high school. It was probably you know 2007, 2008, and I caught my first cobia on a buddy of mine's boat that's still guiding. But uh, um. He wasn't guiding at the time. He was just trying, he was still figuring it out. And, um, it was a ton of fun. I mean, there was not too many boats out there at the time. There wasn't many tower boats at all in Virginia. So people, it would, you'd see some crazy things, man. You'd see uh, people riding around with like deer stands or homemade, <laughs> uh, homemade wooden structures or, or a lot of, uh, just painters, like A-frame ladders strapped to the bow of their boat. Yep. yep. Oh, you saw the crazy stuff. Now, unfortunately, man, it makes it a little less fun. You don't see as much of that, uh, but you see a lot of tower boats, and there's a lot of people, man. So, you, there is um, a lot, lot of people. There was when I was when I was going in high school, and maybe I was oblivious, but I didn't know of any guys. There were some bait fishing guys, you know, that sit and chum, but I didn't. There wasn't any sight fishing guys that I knew of. And now there's there's a ton of them, and they they're awesome at it. They've made a name for themselves. They're all over the YouTube channels and different um, podcasts and whatever else. And, yeah, they they know how to catch fish. That's for sure. And people, they, they it's been figured out. Um, but if, if you go, you know, especially I love staying late. Like you stay till sunset when that if that, flat, if that wind dies out and it's just flat out there, and 
your guides are gone. All the guides and most of your recreational fishermen have gone home. I, I love that part of the day for me. You looking for wakers at that point? Yeah. Yeah, that's the best, man. Once it flattens out like that, you can see a fish 300 yards away because you can just see the weight. Um, and then sometimes you get all the way over to it and it's just, just actually a brute blue crab on the surface. And you're, like, <laughs> you're like, you put off that much weight, dude? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, do you think, this is total speculation, but I know that the Chesapeake Bay for a very long time was kind of regarded as one of the best places to go catch the big stripers. Mm-hmm. And then they they put a moratorium on them, right, for quite some time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, still only one fish that uh, has to be over twenty inches. So um, when when did that happen? And does that coincide with when all these people started coming to cobia fish? Oh no, I don't. I don't think it has anything to do with cobia fishing because those. Those big striper are typically fall and wintertime fisheries okay. where the cobia are in the summer. But, um, yeah, it's weird, man. I mean, the, you know, I talked to some old timers. I have some family, family that members that are big time fishermen that have been fishing the bay for, you know, 20, 30 or more years. Um, and it, there's waves that, you know, happen of, of a certain species having a good fishery. Um, and those big, those big striper, I don't think they they haven't been around as much, man. People catch them trolling. Um, is how you typically fish for them. You troll for them um, in the fall and winter. Um, and yeah, my uncle and my grandfather were big striper fishermen back in the day, and it was actually before my time when they those big striper kind of had a decline. I mean, people still catch them on occasion, um, but now it's definitely tougher. I mean, when you're trolling, you're you're catching the 20 inches, 15 inches, you get a 30 inch or so. But if you go offshore, like, you know, three miles off, I think you can still control There's, You can find some schools. Um, but I, I don't, I don't play around in that game, but, um, but yeah, the, people blame it on the, uh, Menhaden fisheries, Menhaden commercial fishing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I personally can't speak to that all that much because uh, I don't know all the all the stats there. But I mean, just like any commercial fishing, there's a lot of bycatch. Uh, but I'm not sure if that. I don't know if there's any study that actually points, you know, confirm that that's the reason of the decline of those big striper. Um, yeah. But anyway. Well, I mean, it's interesting to think about. I mean, we could go down a rabbit hole for probably another. 45 minutes on the decline of stripers. Um, But it is interesting to think about like what, what is it that has really affected their population? Because like, for instance, in the outer banks used to also be a really good place to catch big stripers. And they, they would catch them from the beach, just like surf fishing. And I'm pretty sure that's, I'm pretty sure that's like non-existent now. Yeah. Um, I remember England doing that. Yeah, I remember, I think I did, it was on a podcast with, with Judd a long time ago, and we had we were talking to a guy who had lived up there during that time when the striper fishing was really good, and they, they were so into it that they would, like, customize their reels. They would open them up, and I'm going to butcher this, but they would open them up and, like, take out certain bearings and all this crazy stuff just to, like, cast a little bit further. Um, hey man, 
when you when you love it, you love it. Dude. That's right. Gather, yeah, gather I really I, I I shouldn't judge because I I'll get into the weeds with stuff like that just for redfish. Um, but yeah, I think this it's definitely interesting to think about. But let's um before before you uh before we cut off, I do want to talk to you real quick about out west trout fishing because um oh yeah I know that you're you're a pretty common visitor of that area and not only not only for fishing for trout but also for doing some bird hunting um mm-hmm. and what have you so do you have a do you have like an area out there after all the time that you've spent out there that you're like this is this is my favorite spot this yeah. is where I like to come yeah so, so to start on that I mean I've got a lot of exploring left to do. That's the thing. And, uh, but I went out there last summer, not this past summer, the summer before. Um, it was a funny story how that happened. My little sister, uh, 10 years younger, but we're really close. And she wanted to go work out West for a summer before her senior year of college. And mom and dad wouldn't let her, um, wouldn't let her go by herself. Uh, cause we're like just an old school Southern family, I guess. I don't know. They weren't, they weren't about that game of her going out there by herself. <laughs> she asked me to go and I was like, well, yeah, why the hell not? And so, um, I went with her and that convinced my, our parents to let her go. And, um, and the rest is history. I went out there and I, I just fell in love with exploring the area. Uh, and that, that's, I think that's what's kind of what I was missing here in Virginia when I said earlier about kind of, just kind of, over so much smallmouth fishing is um, the exploration point of it was kind of leaving you know I've, I've been there and done a lot in this area mm-hmm. i can still there's still more exploring the east coast that's the dance floor but um it was so much fun going to just fish in a new river a new section of river like every day um and yeah so i, was, I had a blast last summer, uh, summer before doing that and i end up meeting uh, my current girlfriend and uh, we stayed together through over the uh, off season there, the winter, I came back here and I went back out this summer after 15 weddings, it seemed like. But, um, I, I, the whole, both times I was living in Missoula. Um, not to blow up Missoula too much because uh, I kind of like to keep Bozeman as the blow up spot. Like, <laughs> yeah. For sure. Because it's already just getting ruined anyway, so you might as well just blow it up more. But because Bozeman has the Madison, the Gallatin, the Yellowstone, which everyone's heard of. Yep. And we're talking about Yellowstone River, not the show. <laughs> uh, Supposedly, so but, my just real quick, my my dad lives part time out in Montana in a little town called Red Lodge, and he's yeah, so pissed off. Been. At that show, Yellowstone, because yeah. he's like, I swear to God, ever since that show came out, there's been people out here that I've never seen before, and it's way more crowded and blah, blah. So, anyways, I thought that well, was hilarious. I think, a, I think it's a culmination of things. I think COVID being one of the reasons more people get to work remote, so I'm a, I'm a concern <laughs> of that. You're a culprit. But Yellowstone did not help. Like, is I feel bad. I, like, I shoot people down all the time. It's just like I'm kind of, like, done with it. Like, they talk about oh, you're living the real life Yellowstone or, you know, you're just like Yellowstone or whatever. And I'm like, no, <laughs> it's a drama. It's like, I hate that show actually. Um, yeah, it's horrible, but it is, I have, there are people that unfortunately I have that move out West because they watch this show and they want to, they think they want to live that lifestyle. I don't know what it is they do, but 
they decided to move to Montana. But kind of back to like where I was living in Missoula, um, it's it's a larger city. I mean, Montana doesn't have two largest cities, but in Mon- in Montana, it's a large city. I think it's like you know fifty thousand people, sixty thousand, eighty thousand people. Um, so is Bozeman, and then Helena are the, probably the three largest city, cities. Um, but Missoula has what it has going for me. It has a bunch of river systems, so you, it has a lot of river miles within an hour or two drive. So you got the Blackfoot, the Clark Fork, and the Bitterroot that all confluence right there in the city. So the Clark Fork runs right through the city. You can catch rainbows right in downtown Missoula. Um, I've done it personally. I read stories about it before I went, and I thought that was probably bullshit, but I've done it, so it's not. <laughs> it's not. It's um, true. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, all the river systems are a little bit different, and they fish different or fish well at different times. Um, and then when it's good, all of them are fishing good. But uh, there's definitely a strategy of, like, to fish the lower Clark Fork or the upper Clark Fork or uh, – you know, the Blackfoot as opposed to the Bitterroot. And mm-hmm. um, there's some strategy. And then a lot of times my brain just gets so twisted trying to figure out what section of river I'm going to float. I just, like, go and just throwing, like, just kind of just pick one and just go. Cause you, can get, you can get too tied up in it. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of choices. But there's a lot of pressure out there, too. I mean, there's a lot of boats. Um, so if, if I were my top advice is anyone that's going out there is to, if you do have your own boat, um, to get out there early. Like I would try to, which is kind of tough. Um, mostly I was taking my girlfriend and, uh, yeah, we had, we were some early morning. Um, and we always were taking our two dogs. So it was like getting the dogs out the door, packing the lunch and getting out there and trying to get out in the water on sunrise at sunrise because you'd beat the, the guide by you know, an hour or more. Yeah. Um, and you beat all the other, obviously, the other recreational guys. Um, and you'd, you'd have a great morning. And especially in the summer when the water warms up a lot, the fish shut off around 10 or 11. Um, so you, you'll, get, you'll get them when they're hot and heavy. And you can throw streamers in the, first thing in the morning, which is obviously my go-to. Man, that, that, uh, that is something that I've never done is throwing streamers for trout. And I honestly, I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed to say that, like, I didn't even know that it was a thing until Dude. like a, maybe a couple years ago. And because yeah. I, I guess that's growing up and going with my dad out there a lot. It was always either dry flies or, or nymphing under a, mm-hmm. a, uh, <laughs> a float, AKA a bobber. Um, uh, indicator. <laughs> yeah, indicator. Yeah. Sorry. Quote unquote indicator. Um, yeah. And like, we never, ever, ever threw streamers and I don't yeah. know why. I don't know if it was just like, is it, is it not that popular to do? Or is it something that just like really diehard trout fishermen are into? What yeah. It, what is it about just, streamers for trout? That's like, not, is it uncommon? Well, it, it, couple different things I actually figured out. So on the East Coast here, um, our tailwaters, um, you know, if they don't have a whole lot of bug life, like fish are constantly eating eating bait fish. Mm-hmm. So they're more keyed into eating those on a broader range of 
times and and water temperatures. They'll eat them more often. Is what I'm getting at. Yep. Out so that so that's one part of it. Out west, those pristine rivers, man, they have a lot of bug life. So their most of their diet is, is bugs. Whether and most of it's nymphs, but or dry flies. But I'm saying, um, I guess the time that to have a successful streamer day is is decreased. It's first thing in the morning, last light cloudier days, rainier days, colder days, you know, days when there's not a lot of bug life going on, it's going to be your better streamer days. So I've caught, I've caught fish on streamers at any weather out there, but I'm saying your better days are going to be a little bit more limited out west because they have so much more bug life to feed on. Um, but I guess the primary reason is, uh, yeah, it's just, it's not a traditional way to, to fly fish, right? I mean, fly fishing was started by having to cast a bait or you know whatever you want to call it, a lure with negligible weight so that's how fly fishing started with, with dry flies mm-hmm. and then people nymph um so it's basically kind of like the new era of fly fishing is, is streamer fishing with these sinking lines um big flies and all these different variations of artic i mean if you, if you think of like the history of fly fishing articulated streamers like just came on the map you know in the past you know 10 20 years Somehow, I mean, Kelly Gallup's been uh, titled sometimes the, the streamer streamer god. Um, and, you know, he's only like in his, whatever, mid-40s, 50s, I don't know. I mean, he's right there in the slide in. He's in, he's in Montana. I've, I've met him um, on the uh, uh, right outside of Ennis, his, uh, his fly shop. That's cool. But, uh, yeah, I think people just don't you know they're they're stuck in their ways mostly so most of your streamer fishermen are younger men or younger women whatever younger fishermen it all makes um, sense now yeah <laughs> and so i love to throw sinking lines and you know big flies and swing it through there swing it through a run or or give it a lot of action and, but other times i mean the floating line is also kind of fun because Typically, if you're fishing floating line with streamers, your streamer's not going to get a seat, so it's a lot of sight fishing. You get to see that strike, um, which is part of the reason why I love the streamer fish. Because if you if you get a dry fly eat the tip, you know, which is always fun to watch. A nymph is just literally seeing the bobber like move a, a centimeter. Um, yeah. But a streamer eat is like they're attacking that thing to kill it. So, um, and, and it, honestly, it's also. Typically, you're typically going to catch bigger fish. Not always, but you're targeting bigger fish when you're streamer fishing, which is more fun to me. But yeah, I'm with you, man. That's super interesting. Yeah. I, next time I, I don't know. Dude, I love to have you out, man. <laughs> yeah, out so... I'm going back out in May, and uh, yeah, you can ask anyone else. This I'm definitely down to put some fish in the boat. You know, it, it, but if I'm if I'm not on the stick. A lot of times I'm in the rower seat. If I'm on the front of the boat, I'm ninety percent chance throwing the streamer. Um, That's awesome. Unless it's hop, unless it's hopper season. I mean, we I had a great hopper season this past year. I love it when when you fish foam enough to where it gets so many holes in it, teeth holes in it, that it won't stay afloat. That's like you're like hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I had some great uh, hopper days, and um, I mean. You know, throwing some patterns that imitate a, a, a you know golden or salmon fly, um, any of the stonefly patterns that kind of also cross reference with a with a grasshopper. You can really 
double, triple your odds. It's top, top water. But if I'm throwing drives, if I'm throwing top water, fly fishing, I mean, I'm probably throwing foam, like bigger foam flies. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the fly fishing purist probably hate me if they listen to this podcast. But yeah, I'm, I'm very rarely throwing the size 20 parachute atoms and, and all that. But Yeah, well. It's really interesting. I mean, I'd love to fish streamers for for rainbows and browns. I think it'd just be so much uh, yeah, different it's, experience it's than what um, I'm used to. Like, it's any like any trout fishing. Well, besides dry fly, sometimes you can be sight fishing, but for the most part, it's, yeah, it's, it's blind casting. And, but what's fun is also like what I like about streamer fishing. Even though it's it's blind casting, it's a lot of times you are sight fishing right because if i see if i see a rock that's submerged in this nice flow that i've determined that day that it's just this this area this kind of habitat is holding fish you're presenting that fly to that rock because there might be a fish behind it mm-hmm. and um you know getting that presentation right and then hooking up on a fish like in a sense you are sight fishing you know yeah. you can't see the fish itself but you know that that habitat right there it's good to hold a, a big brown. I'm going to present my fly to where he can eat it easily. So that's another thing. Sometimes I'm not willing to move all the way across the river. You know, you got to put it in their face, and that could be that's the hardest part. For sure, yeah. I mean, fishing is, is, is presenting that fly right in front of their face where they can eat it easily. And the best way to do that is sinking lines and heavy flies. Like honestly, most of my streamers. You can almost probably throw with a thin rod, like a lot of tungsten. (laughs) That's cool, uh, man. That's that's really cool. I would, uh, yeah, we'll make it happen at some point sooner, hopefully sooner rather than later, but we'll make it happen. Yeah, I'll stop rambling about trout streamers. (laughs) Definitely probably different than most of the listeners about red fishing and trout fishing. So I still. No, I mean I, I I find it. I find the uh, the river trout fishing really interesting, especially ways that I that I'm not familiar with, and and uh, it, you know I would recommend anyone that's you know has never done that but is a big saltwater fly fisherman. It's just such a nice change of pace to like yeah go you know one fish for something different, but two it's just like you're like man they got to be here in this river somewhere instead of where in the heck are they in the marsh? That is, you know, my range yeah. is like forty miles. Right. Yeah, you get a little bit more, a little bit more restricted on the river. Yeah. Sure. Not that. Not but to it say is. it's any easier, but it's the confidence is like, all right, they're in this river somewhere. And, yeah. No doubt. Um, sometimes it just takes half a day. Sometimes you just figure out what they're eating, and then the next thing you know, you're catching them every ten seconds. Yeah, that's the truth. I, I would like say. That, you know? Yeah, that that is probably one of the bigger, one of the biggest challenges I would say for for river fishing, especially for species such like as rainbows and browns, is like, man, if you're not if you're not throwing what they're eating, or what's like hatching, I guess like the match mm-hmm. the hatch saying. Mm-hmm. I've had a couple of days where like we definitely didn't have the right fly, and I know because yeah. we fished the whole day. This was it was one day on the Bighorn, which is in Montana as well oh yeah you fish that tailwater yeah yeah and um and uh we were we fished all day and 
literally did not get a bite. And uh, I'm, <laughs> oh, we're, pu- we're pulling up, which is like really probably very uncommon for that room. That's, that's probably pretty difficult. <laughs> yeah, it probably is pretty <laughs> difficult. Um, and, you know, this is just when I was, it was, it was when I was a kid, we go into mm-hmm. a fly shop or like, you know, my dad's like, what are they eating? And, you know, the guy's like this, this, and this, and we grab those and that's what we fished all day. And yeah. uh, so we didn't catch anything. And we get, we're like back at the, where the car's at or where, where the second car is. And, um, we're pulling up the boat and there's these, I I think they were guides and they must've just been fishing after their trip. And literally right at the boat ramp, we're just like one fish, two fish, three fish. Yeah. And we were like, man, what fly are you using? And he was like this little guy and he held it up and it was like a completely different color than the ones that we had thrown all day. And we were like, we didn't catch anything on these. And he's like, that's because it wasn't the right color. <laughs> yeah. That's a heartbreaker, dude. And that is true, man. I've had those days, especially when I was like the new guy, which I still am the new guy in Montana. No one knows who I am. Um, I'm friends with a couple guys, but um, yeah, dude, I'll go through my whole box of flies and I talk to someone and they're like, yeah, I was throwing this, which, to me, I'm looking at, I'm still not like a trout expert, you know. I'm like looking, I was like, that doesn't even look much different than what I was fishing, you know. But <laughs> sometimes they are keyed in like that. And then other times they'll just, they're up there like biting your indicator or your bobber. They're eating your bobber and you're like, what the hell, dude? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, but yeah, they can be picky sometimes. But that that's kind of what I was saying earlier about like trout fishing on the East Coast or some areas that have less bug life. Um you can get away with a lot more, you know? Yeah. But those fish that have a lot of pressure and they have a lot of bug life, they've seen a lot of bugs floating by. I'm like, yeah, they might be keyed into a certain nymph, which is just, it's crazy. Yeah. But you can't go wrong. I mean, purple with redfish, you know, purple is still great for, for, um, for trout too, man. It's true. Um, I think it's just the color. It, It reflects a lot of light. Very true. Well, Clay, man, I think we've, I think we've covered most of the things that I wanted to talk about. Um, how can people find you on uh, social media? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Thanks for thanks for having me on, man. Um, yeah, we we definitely covered a, a, a gamut of things. Uh, <laughs> we'll talk about we, we, we'll talk about do, uh, uh, upland bird uh, bird hunting next time for sure. Um, I hope the ears just perked up because we we could we could talk about that for another forty five minutes. I'm sure. Oh yeah, no, we'll 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 spare we'll spare the listeners, but um, but yeah, glad I'm glad to be back back on at some point. But yeah, so my Instagram is Clay underscore Fish on Film. Um, what that's about is I shoot I shoot film photography, thirty five millimeter, like the old school uh, cameras. Um, and so, yeah, that's where fish on film comes from. Yeah, and you, you, more, you, I mean, you actually sell some. Um, that is one thing that I did want to talk to you about that that we kind of skipped. <laughs> but um, I'm trying to I'm trying to keep this under like an hour and ten minutes if possible. But, yeah, no doubt. No um, worries. Yeah, Clay's Clay's a really good photographer as well, and you uh, occasionally will, you know, offer prints up for sale on your on your social media and. Uh, you know, they're 
you do a better job of explaining it than me, but they're, you know, pictures from out West, they're pictures from the coast. It, it's kind of runs a whole gamut of, of different yeah. subjects. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll, I'll make this short and sweet, like we can, um, but, but yeah, the, as far as the prints for sale, I don't call myself a photographer, you know, cause I don't like do this full time. There's other people that when they do it full time, they're much probably, you know, much better. And like they're, they're calling themselves a photographer because they're a professional, but I do sell prints. Yeah. Um, and I've been selling them for, for charities. So I actually donated, I don't know, 10 or so prints to, to CCA for them to raffle off. I'm not, that was a silent auction. And, uh, might need to check back up with, with Matthew on that too, on what says is there. But, um, the ones I've sold personally, the mountain, uh, landscapes and the shots I've done out west, I donated to Montana Trial Unlimited. And then the coastal shots, I donated all the proceeds. Well, not even all the proceeds. I mean, all the money to, uh, to Captain for Clean Water. So I've raised about, um, in total, it's not too much. I only, um, but well, five or six hundred bucks that I've donated there um, for the prints that I've sold. But yeah, I just do it for fun, man. Um, I really enjoy the the old school look of film, the grainier backgrounds, the desaturated look, um, and and just photography in general. So I've I've kind of dove into that in the past few years now. Um, so I'm always taking my camera. I try not to, um, I don't like stage photos. So a lot of them are like lifestyle, like kind of, um, shots yeah, yeah, that aren't. They're very natural. Yeah. They're I don't, very natural you know, feeling. tailgate shots and there's not a lot of gripping grins. I know everyone that's the crowd pleaser, right? You know, <laughs> gripping grins with a big fish. There's not a whole lot of those on there if you look through, um, I- Dude, that is, it's funny that you say that. That is something I kind of struggle with, with like a social media page. Like, man, I I just don't want my whole Instagram page to be gripping grins. (laughs) Yeah. I mean. But I get the point of it, you know. Yeah, I mean, if you're running a guide service, gripping grins are probably the way to go. (laughs) Yeah. They're the crowd pleaser. But, but yeah, I enjoy like landscape, uh, lifestyle type of shots, candid shots of of someone out there exploring exploring the outdoors man that's, that's what it's all about you'll see some photos on from tangier on there i've sold a couple of those that was a great trip I, I i was shooting black and white film that weekend and uh i had some really good shots um that i that i enjoyed yeah but, that, uh, that is a very um photo friendly area for sure yeah 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 so official film is where you find those there are some i mean there's there's definitely prints for sale and like i was saying earlier all all this i probably have when i get it printed and everything i personally probably have 20 bucks in it and then i sell them for not much more than that and, and i donate everything to to those different charities so um check that's that awesome out. that's awesome man well i again i really appreciate you taking the time come on this and talk to me about all the different uh, adventures that you've been on and hopefully some people learn something and uh, we'll get you back here I'm sure in the near future yeah man I, we got plenty more to talk about I'm definitely down to come back thanks for having me yeah no worries thanks Clay alright see you again Later.